0: This is episode 56 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. This episode goes back to the 2010 Annual Enrichment Conference, Behold the Church, Gospel Communities on Mission. This is session one, Monday night, with Mark Haven. Good
1: evening. It's a great privilege to pinch hit. Uh, as you know, the uh, United States bobsled they have two teams in case one crashes and burns. And uh, uh, so our first speaking team crashed and burned. And, um, but, you know, that second team, or at least one of our teams, got gold. You know uh, This speaking team hasn't run yet, uh, so you can tell us afterwards uh, how we did. But it is a privilege for Jeff and I, uh, Jeff Vanderself and myself, uh, to bring the theme that we're going to be talking about. Gospel communities on mission. As we think about um, what is a gospel community and what does it mean to be on mission, uh, I can't think of a greater theme, a greater privilege that we have to uh, to dive into that for who we are as a covenant community of CB churches. One of the things that I think is important for us to um, uh, to just let you know about is that um, when it comes to a conference, whether it's Men's Roundup or whether it's it's what we do in our our enrichment time or uh, any of the events that we do at CB Northwest, we bring a team of people together, and we we try to discern before the Lord and, and in prayer what is it that that He would have us to um, uh, to speak on. What would He have us to bring to the to the churches, to the people that uh, we minister to in that context? And um, as we come together, we uh, we sit down, and not only do we work through what it is that we believe that God would have us to. Um, uh, to bring, but then we would talk about the people that we would um, uh, seek out to be able to bring that message, and uh, and we really did desire to have Darren Patrick uh, bring the message as as we went through and we uh, designed each of these sessions, and as we sit down with the speakers and we say these are the kinds of things that uh, we would really like you to pour your heart into and to uh, to deliver to the churches um then that gives them an opportunity to take that outline and to take those thoughts that that we put together and to massage those and uh, to pray over those and to to develop them into a way that hopefully would uh minister in a in a deep deep way. Uh many of you will remember uh, not too many years back we asked Bruce Ware to come and and to speak and uh we sat down with Bruce and we said this is uh, really where we'd like to go we we would really like to try to understand the trinity in light of the community of faith what does it mean to be in healthy relationship uh, with God and one another and what does uh, biblical eldering look like from a relational context and so we processed that through with Bruce Ware and, and many of you know that out of that Bruce wrote uh, his book on the trinity and uh, it was a wonderful experience for all of us to be a part of that uh, this year's no different as we had the privilege of just spending time trying to um, uh, discern how and what is it that God would have us to to do by way of theme uh, by way of content and um, um, and then we uh, just asked Darren if he would bring that and unfortunately he wasn't able to do that but um, but the good thing about that is the way that we go about trying to prepare for the meetings because those who are a part of that team. Uh, who we're going to uh, work with Darren are actually those who are, are going to be bringing our sessions and our plenaries together, Jeff and myself and some of those who will be doing um, the seminars throughout our week. So uh, we're thankful for the process and uh, we trust that uh, it'll be very, very rewarding for all of us, uh, even though you've got the second bobsled team and not the, uh, the number one bobsled team. How many of you were in this building in 1983 in uh, in the summer? Do any of you remember that? I see those hands. Uh, if you'll remember back to 1983, we had a, a conference uh, for the United States, a CB conference for the United States. It was at the Red Lion. Uh, and some of us young guys um, back then, there were a few of us, and uh, uh, we were asked to run a youth celebration. And uh, it may be hard for you to picture, but in 1983, on this floor, uh, there were between what 850 and and a thousand high school students, junior high and high school students, uh, who came to this uh, city for a youth celebration. And it was there at uh, that time that the the games that many of you have played for years since then were born uh nuclear war any of you remember those games No, there's some guys okay some of you are coming to life and uh uh it was there that uh, it was in this in this arena right here that uh, uh we broke up those uh 800 students into teams and uh we marched them down to the beach um the national guard provided for us their water truck we filled up something like 13,000 water balloons and uh, uh we had a war uh, down on the beach that uh, second to none. And uh, it was one of the greatest experience of my life. We had a semi truck that all it did was haul luggage uh, for, for young people from Portland to here. Uh, John Gustafson was in charge of finding buses for moving 800 kids uh, from the Portland area to here, then from here back to Portland. And then from there down uh, uh, or up the Columbia, so that they could uh, spend some time on the sternwheeler. And uh, it is the event that um, sealed in my heart and mind that I wanted to get out of youth ministry as as fast as I possibly could. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in an arena like this where where every bathroom every hallway there was not a place in this building where you could walk without stepping on a sleeping bag uh, of a of a kid and about every 12 minutes somebody would yell out good night john boy you know and it would echo from there and then over there and then you'd hear them laugh over here and uh so finally, a few of us were really smart. We just locked the doors and went and got a hotel room and hoped that they would be alive in the morning. You know, there's nothing like uh, the opportunity to uh, to take the gospel and to, to share it with people and, and to, to bring it into a community. But the thing that I remember about that conference was, is if you can imagine um, fixing lunch for 800 students in this building, uh, we had tables just... Uh, all over this place, and and we were we were making sandwiches like crazy, trying to uh, to feed these all of these students because we had no idea um, that God would bring 800 young people to Portland, Oregon, for a youth celebration um, while the adults did whatever adults do at conferences. Oh, well, I guess it's kind of like this. Um, but anyway, uh, imagine if you would with me that if while we were doing this, there were 800 students somewhere. Um, in this town uh, who were the next generation of those who would lead the Church of the Living God. Um, think what it would be like if um, if what we did here, um, gospel communities on mission was of such significance uh, that the next generation uh, could not help but be compelled to want to embrace the truth of our God and want to live for him with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their mind. As we come to our time together, uh, we realize that if we are going to be the kind of people that are on mission that we need to be, uh, it's going to require an understanding of the church of the living God, maybe to a level that uh, uh, we have been unwilling to embrace uh, in previous years. So tonight, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to just think with me about this whole idea of what is it that's normative from God's perspective. In other words, if you and I could um, see creation from God's perspective, what is it that we would understand about that which is normal from where he sits? If you and I could look into salvation from God's perspective, if we were to see it as he sees it, as that which is normal, what would we see? If we could look at eternity from God's vantage point, if we could see it as he sees it and understand that that's just the normal way to see it, what would we see? This evening I want to try to Help us come to terms with this idea of that which is normative from God's perspective and how important it is that you and I fight, that we labor, that we war, that we work at trying to see that which He would have us to see, uh, to embrace that which He would have us to embrace, that which from our perspective may seem radical. That which from our perspective may seem to be beyond our ability to comprehend, but from God's perspective, it's just normal. So tonight, what I'd like you to do is to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John, uh, the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. And, and it's a wonderful passage of scripture. You know it well. Many of you have preached it many, many times. Uh, but tonight I want to look at it through the vantage, uh, through the, through the lens of, um, Just what is it that's said here, and how does God perceive it? And how should we perceive it in light of that? And so tonight I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me. We're going to put the scripture up on the screen, and uh, we're just going to read. But if you would stand as we read God's word as it is here on the scripture, on the screen.
0: On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, Except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him.
1: Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, as we think about the word of God, as it was read, read to us here, um, we acknowledge our desperate dependency upon you. And so tonight it would be, um, it would bring us great pleasure if you would help us to see and to hear uh, that which your spirit would have for us from this passage of scripture. And that we'd be able to apply it to our lives and our ministries in ways that um, that you uh, would obviously have superintended. And so we thank you for your word and uh, we trust it and we live by it and we give you thanks for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, please be seated. As we take time to look at this description, this story of God, um, here we have Jesus describing that which is uh, an incredible word picture, the, the bread of life. As we think about this passage of scripture, we realize that there are three major descriptions that take place. The first description is simply a description of the Father. The second description is a description of those whom the Father draws. And then the third description is is that which is the benefit that we receive because we are those who have been uh, drawn by God into the family of God. Uh, this evening, what I would like to do is I'd like to just take a few moments and, and walk through these descriptions because I think they're important uh, for us to get a, a handle on, on just what this text is saying by way of description. Uh, because it becomes important when we start to analyze the responses of those who uh, heard the description. If you think about it for just a a little bit, you realize that the audience that is in this text are, first of all, a group of Jews. And we have a a, a Jewish listening audience, one who uh, is going to take this through their ear gate. Uh, We also have Jesus' disciples themselves and uh, how they are 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 hearing this. We have some Gentiles and we have the 12. As we look at the, the these descriptions, we realize that the audiences are all going to respond to these descriptions in their own unique way. If you look at verse 27, as we begin to look at the descriptions of the Father, notice that it says that God the Father set a seal on his Son. As we continue looking at the description of the father verse twenty nine says "This is the work of God the Father that you believe in God the Son, whom God the Father sent in verse thirty two notice that it says, "God the Father gives you the true bread from heaven that comes from the Son." Then look over at verse thirty seven as we um, as we get a hold of this description of the Father, all that the that God the Father gives to the Son." Uh, will come to God the Son. Uh, Notice what it says in verse 40. For this is the will of God the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Verse 44. No one can come to God the Son unless God the Father draws him. Look at verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God the Father. Everyone who has heard and learned from God the Father, comes to God the Son. Then look over at verse 57 and notice what it says. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever of me, God the Son, he also will live because of me. Now look at verse 65. No one can come to God the Son Unless it is granted to him by God the Father. So when we look at this description of God the Father, what we realize is, is that this text is really one of, of describing the work of God the Father through his son. So when Jesus Christ declares, I'm the bread of life, he is declaring this idea that he is the bread of the life because of the work of the Father. Then as we continue analyzing the passage, what we begin to realize is, is that because of what God the Father does through God the Son, there is this process of drawing people uh, to God the Father through the Son, and that those who God draws receive great benefit. So if you look over at verse 29, you'll notice that it says that those who the Father draws, that they believe. In verse 35, it says, that those that are drawn by the Father will come and will believe. And then notice what the benefit is. Uh, They will not hunger. They will not thirst. If you go down to verse 40, notice what it says of those who are drawn by the Father. We will look on the Son and we will believe. But look at the benefit that comes because of that belief. They will have eternal life. And the Son of God will raise them up on the last day. If you go down to verse forty-five, notice what it says: everyone who has heard and learned. So those who have been drawn by the Father, they are those who have heard and learned. And what's the benefit? They come to God the Son. Verse forty-seven. Notice what it says of those who are drawn, drawn by the Father: whoever believes. And then notice the benefit. They have eternal life. Verse 51, notice what Jesus says. I am uh, the living bread. So those who uh, are drawn by the Father, they are embraced by um, this living bread. And if they eat this living bread, notice what the benefit is. They will live forever. Verse 54 then moves to a, a different level, doesn't it? Uh, the text now changes, and and all of a sudden, those who are drawn by the Father in verse fifty four are those who eat the flesh of the Son and they drink his blood. What is the benefit of that? It says, they have eternal life, and the Son of Man will rise them up on the last day verse fifty six whoever feeds on me, the Son of God, on his flesh. And drinks his blood. Those who are drawn by the Father, this is what they do. And notice what the benefit is. They abide in the Son of God and he abides in them. In verse 57, those who are drawn by the Father, notice what it says. It says that they feed on the Son of Man. And the benefit is he also will live because of the Son of Man. And then verse 58, Whoever feeds on this bread and the benefit they will what? They'll live forever. They'll live forever. Now I want you to think about the passage. Here's a description of the father. There's a description of who the father draws. And then there's a description of the benefits for those who have been drawn by the father. As we process through this passage, passage, we realize that there are those who heard these words. Um, they were those who had to process these words. And, and we realized that, first of all, there was a group called the crowd. If you look at verse 25, it, it describes the reaction of the crowd to these words. And what we begin to understand is is they realize that there's a benefit to these words. And they want to know something. What must we do? Um what must we do and to to embrace this how can we do this work this work of god verse 28 says rabbi when did you come here when did you when did you get from this side of the of the water to that side of the water how did you get here and and how do we get in touch with that which uh, this bread offers to us and and jesus knows their hearts and and he says you're not coming because you want to believe, but you're coming because you want to get your bellies filled. In verse 30, notice what they say. Then he says, then what sign do you do? So so now that Jesus begins to say, you know, this is about belief. Now they begin to ask the question and say, we need something more from you, Jesus. We need you to, to do a sign that we might see, and, and then we can believe you. What are some works that you are going to perform for us? And then verse 34, notice what it says. It says, Sir, uh, give us this bread always. So the crowd's response to Jesus was all about that which they could receive, the, uh, the bread and the benefits of the bread. Not about Jesus and not about who he is. But there's another group that are looking on and listening to this word, these words, and, and they're the Jews. In verse 41, it says that the Jews grumbled about him. As he heard these words, their response was to grumble about him. In verse 42, notice what it says. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? In other words, who is this guy? Um, We know as parents, Um, do we really need to listen to this? Do we really believe what he's saying? Can we come to terms with these words knowing who he is? Verse 52, then the Jews disputed amongst themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? The third category that the the passage describes are the disciples. So notice what it says in regards to the disciples. Verse 60 says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? In verse 61, uh, they too grumbled about his teaching among themselves. And in verse 66, notice what it says. After this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. Why? Think with me for just a second. When Jesus said these words, when Jesus said, um, I'm the bread of life. uh, When Jesus said that you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. When Jesus said, unless the Father draws you, you will not believe. When these words were put out of Jesus's mouth, how, how do you think the Trinity, Process that. In other words, did the did the Godhead say, "Wow, that was really radical. Uh, we we really uh, we really pushed the envelope there. Um, boy, we just uh, we really brought something to those those humans." Uh, In other words, when when Jesus talked this way, why was he talking like this? Why was Jesus describing himself as the bread of life? Why was Jesus describing himself in terms that um, that said, you've got to eat of me. You've got to take of me. You have to Embrace me in and through the wholeness of your being. In other words, I don't think they were radical from Jesus's perspective. I think the words were normative. I think from God's perspective, Jesus is the bread of life. I think from God's perspective, um, you gotta eat his flesh. You gotta, you gotta drink his blood. I think from God's perspective, he's just declaring this is the way you come to me. Uh, this is the norm. But how did his disciples respond? They turned back and they no longer walked with Jesus. So if you come down to verse 66, and you process through that text, you begin to see that that there are those who Jesus looks at. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, the last category, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, uh, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him." Here's the word picture that I want us to try to to get a hold of. When we look at John chapter six, what we realize is is that um, there were a number of people, a crowd, Jews and disciples, who couldn't deal with the normative. They couldn't deal with the, the what really is. In other words, if they could reduce salvation to eating bread that Jesus provided, then they were okay. We're for that. If they could recast the story, to fit with who they knew Jesus was, the son of Joseph and Mary, just one of them. Uh, if somehow they could take the words and, and uh, rewrite them so that they weren't so hard to listen to, then maybe they'd be okay with that. But it was the 12. It was the 12 who said, the way Jesus said it, no matter how hard it is, it's what's right. It's what's true. It's the real norm. As you think about what our Bible says, as we. Uh, together this week, spend time thinking about the gospel, about community, about mission. As we spend time together walking uh, with those words in front of us, it becomes really, really important, does it not, that we come to terms with what the normative statements of scripture are about the gospel. What does the Bible say? the gospel is. It's really important that we come to the normative statements of Scripture as to what the Scripture says the church is. What does the Bible say the church is? When it comes to the mission, it becomes really important, does it not, that we recognize that this is what the Bible says the mission is. Now let me just... uh, Try to take this a little further uh, this evening. How many of us would expect that the statements of the gospel would be easy statements from our perspective? How many of us would think that the statements about, about the church would be easy statements from our perspective? Or the mission. Would they be easy statements from our perspective? No. In other words, what's normative from God's perspective becomes what? It becomes radical from our perspective. If I'm going to embrace who Jesus really is, then I'm going to have to come to terms with some things that are are very hard to hear. But they have got to lead me to belief. If I'm going to come to terms with what the Bible says About what the gospel is. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to embrace those statements no matter how hard they are. If I'm going to come to terms with what the Bible says about his church and about the mission of the gospel, then all of a sudden what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to come to terms with what those statements are. Why? Why is it so important that we come to terms with those statements? Because that becomes the evaluation of whether or not we truly believe. You see, we don't get the privilege of recasting the gospel into that which we want it to be. We must embrace it for what the Bible declares it to be. We don't get to refashion church into what we want it to be, but we must embrace what the Bible declares it to be. And we do not get to make the mission anything we want it to be, but we must embrace that which the Bible declares for it to be. Because when we look at our churches, when we take the time to do a 360 degree evaluation of our church, of the churches of the Northwest, of the covenant community of CB churches around the Northwest, when we look at ourselves carefully, will we be a reflection of the normative statements of Scripture as it relates to who we are and what we do? Or if we were to look carefully into who our churches are and what our churches spend their time on, would it look like something different? than that which the Bible declares them to be. So tonight, what I would like to do is, is just take a few moments and, and um, just remind us, if you will, of some of those great affirmations that come from the scripture as it relates to those things that uh, the Bible declares to be true about the gospel, about the church, and about the mission. If you think of, who we are as a covenant community of churches we affirm our commitment to the task of living as gospel communities on mission that's what we do as a as a as a covenant community of churches we we affirm our commitment to the task of living as gospel communities on mission how do we do that we do so by pledging ourselves in allegiance to Christ himself to the gospel itself, and to each other as fellow ambassadors of the kingdom of God. As we begin to, to process that, as we as we talk about that this week, as we think about this idea that, that we have pledged ourselves as, as those who are gospel communities on mission, as we have uh, pledged our allegiance to Christ himself, and as we have pledged our allegiance to the gospel itself, and to the mission of God as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, we realize that the Bible gives us those things that we affirm. And so we've prepared for you, and uh, you'll get access to these on the web when, if, if you would like to have them. But here are some of those affirmations. In other words, when you hear these words, these these words of affirmation from the scriptures as it relates to the gospel, as you hear these words of affirmation from the scriptures as it relates to Uh, the church and to the mission. Here's the, here's the question that I have for you. When you look at your church, when you look at us as, um, as a covenant community of churches centered on the gospel, when you, when you honestly evaluate who we are and who you are as the, as the church represented throughout the Northwest, do these affirmations, do they represent what you and I are as we live as the church of the living God in community. In other words, when people see us, are they going to see what the Bible declares or are they going to see something else? Let's look at these together. Number one, we affirm that the gospel entrusted to the church is God's gospel and his alone. We affirm that the gospel is the saving power of God and that the gospel affects salvation to everyone who believes. We affirm that the gospel diagnoses the universal human condition as one of sinful rebellion against God. We affirm that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, the only mediator between God and humanity. We affirm that the church is commanded by God and is therefore under divine obligation to preach the gospel to every living person. We affirm that faith in Jesus Christ is the divine word, the logos, the second person of the Trinity, co-eternal and co-essential with the Father, And the Holy Spirit is foundational to faith in the gospel. We affirm that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, the virgin born descendant of David. He had a true human nature, was subject to the law of God, and was like us in all points except without sin. We affirm that the atonement of Christ, by which in his obedience he offered a perfect sacrifice, propitiating the Father by paying for our sins and satisfying divine justice on our behalf according to God's eternal plan is an essential element of the gospel. We affirm that Christ's saving work included both his life and his death on our behalf. We affirm that the bodily resurrection of Christ was from the dead is essential to the biblical gospel. We affirm that the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, is essential to the gospel. We affirm that the doctrine of imputation, both of our sins to Christ and of his righteousness to us, whereby our sins are fully forgiven and we are fully accepted, is essential to the biblical gospel. We affirm that saving faith results in sanctification, the transformation of life in growing conformity to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification means the ongoing repentance of a life of turning from sin to serve Jesus Christ in grateful reliance on him as one's Lord and Master. We affirm that the saving faith includes mental assent to the content of the gospel, an acknowledgment of our own sin and need and personal trust and reliance upon Christ and his work. As we think about the affirmations from the Bible as it relates to the gospel, the question is, is when we minister the gospel, would people come to these conclusions because of the work of the ministry of our church? Think of the church itself the affirmations from God's word as it relates to the church. We affirm that the church is known in the world by our love for one another. We affirm that the church, we are to confess our sins to one another. We affirm that the church is to apply correction, discipline to its own members. We affirm that the church is to be led by servant leaders. We affirm that the church is to partner in prayer for the advancement of the gospel, we affirm that the church is to be uh, to to build strong families because the family and the church are interdependent, theologically and functionally parallel institutions ordained by God. We affirm that the church that as the church we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We affirm that as the church of the word. That the, excuse me, we affirm that as the church, the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly as we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. We affirm that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We affirm that we are to acknowledge and affirm God's working in other local churches. We affirm that we are the one body of Christ with varieties of gifts and service and activities empowered by God and for the common good. We affirm that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We affirm that as the church Whatever we do in word or deed, we are to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We affirm that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. As people engage in your church, are those what they discover because they're a part of your family? Uh, does your church's leadership lead people to the conclusion that this is what the family of God looks like? These are the normative statements that come from Scripture. The mission. What does the Scripture say? We affirm that we are commissioned by Christ to make disciples in a cultural context of all nations. We affirm that we are to teach disciples to be obedient to all the commandments of Christ. We affirm that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And as ambassadors of Christ, he is making his appeal through us. We affirm that we are to live before others so that they see our good works and glorify God uh, to our, to God the Father who is in heaven. We affirm that we are to declare and apply the redemptive message to all creation. We affirm that the church. Is commanded by God and is therefore under divine obligation to preach the gospel to every living person. We affirm that we are to bear witness of the resurrected Christ and to proclaim the repentance and the forgiveness of sins with power. We affirm that as the Father has sent his Son, so Christ sends us to incarnationally and redemptively engage the lives of our neighbors and our neighborhood in humility. In service, we affirm we are to reason with both the religious and the irreligious from the scriptures concerning the gospel of the resurrected Christ. We affirm that we are to declare the gospel by witness and to make disciples in the power and the provision of the Holy Spirit. And we affirm that although we are free in Christ, we are to make ourselves servants of all kinds of people so that we might share with them the gospel message and its blessing. So what's the point? What's the big idea? As we start this conference, if we're truly going to talk about what does it mean for us to be gospel communities on mission, then we're going to have to come face-to-face with what the Bible says is the gospel, what the Bible says is the church, and what the gospel says is the mission. For us not to embrace those accurately would be for us to to rewrite the church, to rewrite the gospel, to rewrite the mission. Why is this important? Because for us not to do this, for us to not take the time and to um, look carefully at who we are as the the church of the living God um, makes it impossible for the next generation to truly know who it is that we serve and who it is that leads to salvation. So here's the here's the takeaway for tonight. As the father in John 6 drew people to Jesus Christ and as they came to Jesus Christ they they partook of the bread of life. As they ate his flesh and as they drank his blood um they became those who embraced the word of life. Uh, they became alive. They began to, to walk all the way through with Jesus Christ, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And they became those who started the greatest movement in all of human history, as we read through the book of Acts, the development of the New Testament church. Well, here we are on the other side of that. Here we are, the New Testament church, down through the ages, uh, looking for the blessed hope and and the glorious appearance of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we journey together as a covenant community, as gospel communities on mission. What is it that I need to discover? What is it that our churches need to discover? That though they may be hard statements, this is hard. And though some may even just walk away and define church in their own terms. That there would be those who are called by God who would declare that we believe. So tonight, what I would like you to do is I would like you to just bow your head with me. And I would like you to just think with me on this question. If we were to take a 360-degree look at our church, Would we see the radical outpouring into our world that comes from living in the normative of Scripture? Would people see what the Bible declares that they should see from the church of the living God? And if that's not what they see coming from our church, from our leadership, from who we are, why not? And what is it that we need to do when what is normative of the church from God's vantage point isn't normal for us as a church? How do we change? And most importantly, what's keeping us from changing? Lord Jesus, tonight, we just want to pause and we recognize that um, what your Bible says about the gospel what your Bible says about the church, the covenant community, and what your Bible says about the mission, that to truly understand the words, we would have to say from our perspective, from our vantage point, these are hard words. From our vantage point, we would have to say that this is radical. From our vantage point, we would have to say if these things be true about us, it would turn the whole world upside down. So Lord, tonight we just want to pause and take stock and ask the question. If the words of the Bible, as it relates to what you declare to be true about your church, is not what we see, or to some degree we do not see it, then God, would you be so gracious as to avail that disparity to us so that we might turn to you and believe that we would embrace that which you say because you have the words of life. Your word declares that the Bible, the words from the Bible, that they're living and they're active, that they're sharper than any two-edged sword, and that they pierce to the division of the bone and the marrow, and that they judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Oh God. What is the judgment that you render to us tonight as we contemplate the truths of your word? Not simply the truths of what your word says about Jesus as the bread of life, as important as that is, but what your Bible says about the finished work of the bread of life on the cross of Calvary. What your word says about the bread of life as the head of the the church of the living God. And what your word says about the bread of life as the one who has sent us into all the world to make disciples. Help us to embrace that which the word of life has for us tonight, as we think about your word, as we think about our church, and as we think about the covenant community of churches in the Northwest, may what is normative in scripture become the norm for us as we live in that radical normal of the word of God. And we will give you praise in Jesus name we pray. Amen.